Hello and welcome to Behind the Lashes with me, Joanna Lee. In this series, I'm going to be speaking to lash artists from around the globe. I want to know what makes them tick and also how they're surviving C19. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Lashes. It's been a while, but I thought it was about time we introduced some new episodes. And also, I am happy to add a new voice to the team as well. She is a veteran lash artist. She is passionate about helping her students and lash artists who are struggling with issues. And also, she is passionate about those really tricky lash sets. Of course, it's Frankie Widow's. Hello, Frankie. Hi, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. You are welcome. A fellow Londoner. Pretty much, yeah. Kind of south of London, but yeah, it's just so much easier to say London because then everybody pretty much like knows where that is in the UK. So yeah, not far from there at all. Same as me, actually, because I'm not really London, but I always say London. So anyway, yeah, just keep it kind of general. <laughs> People know roughly where we are. They do, yeah. So Frankie, this is Behind the Lashes, and as you know, the format is that I like to go behind the lashes. I like to be a little bit nosy and dig behind and find out about the person before the lashes came to the forefront of your life. Is that okay? Oh God, absolutely. Yeah, and um, like I said to you before, I can talk the hind legs off a donkey. So uh, yeah, please uh, grab yourself a cuppa and uh, sit <laughs> Hopefully enjoy. <laughs> well, that is going to make my job super easy. So I love that. Let me take you back to little Frankie. So what was life like for you growing up? Where did you grow up? Okay, so I've, I've never actually really moved. So where I live now, I'm literally only five miles away from where I grew up, which was in Canterbury uh, in Kent. So we're pretty much on the sort of the very, very southeast coast of England where uh, we joined sort of the rest of Europe or France uh, so yeah I grew up down there uh, with my mum and dad and I had a very um, very simple uh, child childhood really and um, bit of a tomboy never really a girly girl was never into dollies or makeup or dresses or anything like that out in the garden climbing tree uh, motorbike were my absolute favorite as a kid um yeah so the fact that I'm kind of in the beauty industry now is kind of a little bit of a shock really because it's nothing that I ever thought that I would would do but the um I, I did okay at school I'm not really an academic I'm more of a creative person so obviously did my GCSEs with the view of well view of potentially being a vet when I was younger because I always loved um animals but when I realised it was seven years training, I was kind of like, I'm not going to university for seven years. I'm just driving. <laughs> so then I thought I might be a graphic designer because I was very artistic. So that was always the thing that I loved to do was art. But I sort of thought I wasn't quite creative or wasn't good enough. I felt art to sort of get into the whole sort of design thing. Um, so um, having sort of done GCSEs and you know, scraping by, like I said, I'm not an academic in that. I kind of didn't really know what I sort of wanted to do. You know, I also had a sports background as well, but I sort of, I didn't really want to go into the 
sort of the teaching, like a lot of the sporty people did, it was kind of like, let's go and be a teacher. You know, I sort of spent you know, my whole life not wanting to, well, I couldn't wait to leave school. And the last thing I thought I want to do is actually go back and be a teacher and be there all the time. So that was sort of something I was kind of like, well, what do I sort of really do with my life? And um, yeah, I, you know, had my love of animals, my love of art and my love of sport. But I was just kind of like, I don't really want to do those as a job and didn't really know what I wanted to do but I was always kind of like very action-packed kind of person like I was like I said I was always climbing trees and rolling around in the mud and you know I'd, 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 ridden, I'd ridden horses as well I wasn't you know so I'd always been out on the yard sort of getting dirty although I wasn't a very good horse rider I used to fall off quite a lot so <laughs> that wasn't okay. something um and one day my dad said to me um why don't you join the police so I was kind of like like yeah, right then, because that just seems like something that's quite good to do. And uh, yeah, so that was sort of my first job that I kind of really got into was being a police officer before I did beauty. So it's a bit crazy, really, that I'm here today. So how long were you a police officer for? So uh, I'm going to kind of show my age now, um, because I was a police officer for 10 years. So I joined the police at the age of 20. Mm -hmm. And I, God, I was so immature. Uh, they shouldn't have taken me in to be honest like everything was just funny at 20 like I was just like I was like this sort of big sort of I can just say like I used to just sort of bounce through life with these pink flowers flying out behind me and everything was a laugh and you know when I joined the police it was a big shock to the system because I'd always grown up from you know my my family you know my mum and dad were great parents everything was always very sedate and there was never any drama in my life or anything like that you know I'd never seen the horrors of the world really so to go from this sort of pink fluffy life that was very pleasant that I grew up in to suddenly be propelled into this world of well no one calls the police for a nice time do they everything that you see in the police is a bit doom and gloom and it was a real sort of shock to the sister and it was a it was a massive change in my character, actually. I went from this very sort of happy-go-lucky person to actually, know this is the reality of what you do. And I actually always remember in the police when I was very, very new, I used to get told off quite a lot at training school because I'd not, but because I used to sort of have this morale about me. And, and a lot of people in the police, or, you know, if there's people listening that are in the police, I know exactly what I'm talking about, whereas those on the outside, they won't, they'll be like, well, what are you talking about? You think that's nonsense. But they're pretty much like, right, you know, you knuckle down, you do this, you basically become a robot. And it literally kind of, I felt like it stunted my growth because I went in so young at 20 and I came out at the age of 30. I felt like I'd kind of lost those 10 years of my life. So now I'm, because I'm, you know, I'm 38 now, but I'm 39 tomorrow, actually. Oh. oh no, I don't like getting out. But I live my life like I'm 23. I, I feel like a child. I don't feel like I'm an adult. And uh, I'm reading this great book at the moment called Reluctant Adult. And that is me. It's about how we just don't want to grow up. And I think it's because I felt like I lost those 10 years, Jeff, so from being in the police. And, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was a great time for learning and growing up. But I do feel like I, I lost a lot. And... Um, I regret it. What being a police officer? No, I don't. I never regret anything in life because I always think that life is about learning, Mm. and uh, as long as you take something from what you've done, there's a there's a there's a positive in everything. So you know, it, it did make me see. It did make me grow up. It did make me become very independent. You know, I don't take now 
I don't take any shit from anyone uh, because of that. And But it's also made me quite a hard person. Like, I'm very black and white. I'm very, very black and white. Um, because you have to be when you're in that role. You know, I'm not... I'm not the most pink and fluffy person, you know, I don't, <laughs> you know, some people are so, mm. like, I've got this neighbour and she's just the most lovely, but she's the person that I would want to be, she's just, she's called Wendy and she's just <laughs> lovely and soft and I'm like, she's everything that I'm not and I'm quite sort of direct down the line and I think because that's what that turned me into, but yeah, I did 10 years in the police, I did four years as a response officer, so, you know, if you'd call 999, I'd you know if you're on response those are the ones that turn up and then because I had a real passion for animals I wanted to join the dog section so I joined the dog section there really there aren't many females that actually get on the dog section it's really quite hard because it's quite a physical job you've got to have a natural affinity with an animal like I think you almost can't it's almost like you can't train it. It's a bit like being an artist, you know, you either got it or you haven't. And I think being a dog handler is that as well. You've either got it or not with animals. And, mm. you know, from a young age, I've always loved animals. So I, you know, I worked the dog section for six years and I, I loved working with the dogs. You do you know? get your own dog for the period that you're there? Do you get assigned one animal or, or do you all just sort of mix and match? Yeah, so you get your own dog. So you'll usually take that dog on um, at about 12 months of age. So the dogs get either bought in or bred by the force. Um, and they will go out to puppy walkers at the age of sort of eight weeks. And the puppy walkers are crazy people that volunteer like a year out of their life to have this puppy that just literally destroys their house and <laughs> the training. And then they give it back at the, at the end. And it makes no sense. Like you have to give this little dog back. Like I couldn't. Yeah like how do you even do that so usually you then get your 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 dog um that's about 12 months old and they've literally they've done a little bit but they're kind of like a little bit out of control because they want that dog to have that drive a bit they want him to be a bit of a yob so you can get this this dog and you're expected to train it so you then go on a 13 week uh handlers course with this dog where the dog gets taught to track to search to bite um, all of those sort of things and then the dog gets licensed and that is your dog so that means that you take that dog home with you so that dog wow. lives with you, um, all the time so you have a kennel in your garden and you kennel that dog so even on your rest days that's your responsibility to have that dog but they're not a family dog because mm -hmm. there's a difference between a family dog and a working dog mm -hmm. you know you can't really cross the two over um would you, you know, be allowed to have a family dog at the same time or not you have a working yeah, dog oh you can a lot of people do have family dogs as well and you know they do let the dogs in the house and that you know you know some of them are very sociable with the family and they can switch on and off from that like mm. police mode to family mm. mode but a lot of the time you know you kind of want you it is it is a working dog at the end of the day and i always found that quite difficult you know mm. to have a dog in that because some handlers are very much like, right, dog stays in the kennel, dog never comes in the house. And other people are like, oh, dog can come in the house when it's a little bit cold and things like Maybe that. Maybe not on the bed. It's not on the bed, no. So, and I was kind of like, yeah, dog can come in the house. And by the end of it, my dog slept inside with me because uh, I just didn't want him out in the garden. So, um, so yeah, so you have your own dog and that is, 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 is your own dog for hopefully its whole career however I did when I first joined the dog section I got through about five dogs I think it was that just weren't making the grade right. um and I ended up taking on a uh a two-year-old that had already been a police dog but he'd, he'd lost his confidence like I don't think he'd been paired up with the right handler he was 
he was definitely a woman's dog. I think he needed a very soft, soft handling. He did. He was very uh, German Shepherds, which is what our English police use. They're is that very, like an Alsatian, or is that the yeah, same thing? Yeah, yeah. The Alsatian German Shepherd are, are the same dog. Um, they're very sensitive. They are. A lot of people don't realise it, but they're very, very sensitive. And he, my first dog, he was very, very sensitive. And you know, it took a lot of work with him. So coming on as a new handler that was you know an inexperienced dog handler to have to work this dog it taught me a lot um and god he was a he was a cracking like nose work his nose work was amazing the jobs that we had in the tracking jobs and searching jobs that we had in but he just wasn't very brave like he's had his confidence destroyed so sort of anything like violent he um he wasn't very good with like i'd have to run in and he'd be hiding behind me. <laughs> quivering but, like yeah but <laughs> do you know why he'd had his confidence knocked do you, do you get their backstory yeah and you know i don't ever like to talk bad of anybody but the handler that i had him before you know i don't think he knew how to work that dog and he tried to to bully confidence in him and he kind of got after him because you know you have to understand that that dog you know every dog is different and and it just you know, like i said shepherds i've learned over the years are so sensitive like some of you know my shepherd at the moment he's very very sensitive you know you can't get after him because he will literally just fold and my other shepherd was 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 like that so yeah he'd lost his confidence just through poor handling so it took a lot but the problem is is that once they've lost that confidence you'll never ever turn them right again like you know no. I, I probably did about 70 percent and got him good but you know, a lot of the damage had been done already. And to be honest, I think it's the same for lash artists. What once they've lost their confidence? <laughs> I don't think so because with with dogs, you can't you, you can't have a conversation with them, can you? You know, you can't sit down and, and and be logical about it. Whereas I think with lash artists, and you know, I see a lot of students that have lost their confidence. Actually, if you're honest with them and you sit down and you tell your own story. They actually do start to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel and they think, mm. oh my God, I can do this. Like, you know, if some of the, you know, some of the lash artists that I've trained that have lost their confidence, you know, I, like I said, I tell them my stories. I show them my work from years ago and the stories of sticking people's eyes together and... <laughs> have you actually done that? Yeah. Just with the lower lashes, just capping. I stuck the whole eye together. So I stuck my client. She was a talker. And yeah. her eyes blinked all the time. And at the end of the set, I stuck both eyes completely solid shut. I had to remove the whole set. Oh, my God. That's my worst nightmare. Oh, well, I've done everything. I have so many horror stories from being a young lash artist. And, you know, I did lose my confidence. But as I said the great thing is, is that we can, you know, we can reassure people and we can tell them the stories and we can communicate with them and just, you know, really give them give them a boost and tell them that god you, you know you can do this because everybody points out their flaws don't they but actually if you sit with a student or something say well actually look at your direction look at your use your control of adhesive or the beautiful shaping that you've got in that set it's about making them look at the positives and then just work on what they think are the negatives i do find that as a breed a bit like german shepherds perhaps lash artists are quite a sensitive bunch and i do find that it's I don't know. I don't know whether it's part of needing to have that sensitive side in order to be so creative that obviously we need to be to be good lash artists and whether that goes hand in hand with lack of confidence. I mean, I've been lashing for years and years and years like you, and I still have moments of real dips of confidence where I feel like I'm not good enough. I said this to you the other day when we were talking on Instagram. I think it's quite... Um, 
quite common among us as a breed of professionals. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that that lack of confidence comes from those that are super passionate about what they do. Because when you're passionate, like, you know, we are, we always want to be the best, don't we? And I think, you know, when you are passionate, it's very easy to feel that you aren't good enough. And again, this is not helped by social media where people mm -hmm. only post their perfection. So we're always, you know as lash artists especially we're always looking at social media you know whereas they say like youngsters now aren't they youngsters are very much all about their appearance because they're bombarded by pictures of perfect people and we're bombarded by pictures of perfect lashes so we feel like we're not good enough and we see fault in everything that we do which i don't think is always a bad thing because mm. it pushes you to be better but you've also got to be, I think, very kind to yourself. You know, you've got to look at the platform of lashes that you're working on. The fact that we're not creating a whole face of makeup where we can contour and, you know, make the eye go from round to, you know, almond. We're, we're only doing what we do with lashes and we are limited to, to what we can do. And, you, you know, you've got to get that, you know, in, in your head. And actually, one of the best courses that I took was, was um, with Francesca Middleton. Um, oh, right. She used to do my lashes many moons ago. Yeah. and she you know i don't don't speak to her a lot now um is, oh God, what was her company called was it lash academy or something yes i think so got one of us i can't la lash academy or something like that and she said to me she said stop trying to be so perfect she said you are going to drive yourself insane she said natural lashes aren't perfect and most people don't want perfect eyelash extensions. They want them to look natural. And it's so true. You know, look at the wispy lash effect that mm. we've got now that's so popular. Mm. That is, you know, very far from perfection what most people produce. And mm. clients love it. So I think we are unnecessarily hard on ourselves when actually we just need to chill out. And like I sometimes say, look, we're just sticking bits of plastic on someone's eyes. Don't overcomplicate it too much. It's just lashes and they're going to be off in three weeks. Yeah. And as simple as that so I think sometimes we're lashing for other lash artists you know and not for our clients we're looking for that um adulation or not adulation but you know you're looking to be affirmed by fellow lash artists and that's that's the perils of social media it is amazing to as a learning tool but it can be a curse as you've just said yeah I totally agree with you Jo I really do and let's say, I, I, I mean, I heard, I heard you speaking on a podcast the other day and you were saying that at the end of the day, you can have a bad lash day. You can be lashing a client who you've lashed for forever and you have a bad lash day and you're sitting there looking at your set thinking, God, those are shit. I've done, I had a really bad day. Your fans have been awful, whatever. You just haven't been able to get your mojo going. And they open their eyes and they're as happy as they ever are with any other, other set that you have done. So we are hard on ourselves. We are, and I, I sit. I, it's a difficult one because there's two types of lashing, isn't there? There's what is what I class as technically correct competition lashing, and then there's almost like saddle lashing, commercial lashing. Yeah, they're, they're two different types of things. So you know what you can produce in your salon that's going to make a client happy is completely different to technical precise. You know where we're dissecting every single extension that you've put on and you know if you're going to produce that type of work it's going to take you hours mm -hmm. whereas when you're salon lashing you've only got a set amount of time haven't you so it's just a case of doing what you've got to do that is safe and aesthetically pleasing that that client's going to be happy with and not overthinking it too much and being happy with what you've produced yeah. and that client being happy with with what you've done exactly 
good advice. Now, how did you go from working your police dog to becoming a lash artist? Because that's quite a jump. It is. Um, well, the sad fact is, is that I actually hated being a police officer. Um, I knew when I joined, I think on the first day that I rode the bus back from police training school to my accommodation, I just thought this just isn't for me. It isn't. I felt like a complete fish out of water. But I was always like, oh, it'll be fine. Suddenly, you know, everything will slot into place and I'll feel very comfortable. And I never did. It just never felt right for me. So hence why I went off to the dog section and did that. And um, I was so passionate about working the dogs, but the police is about chasing figures. That's all it is. The police isn't there to help people. And that's the sad reality. Really? Yeah, and do you know what, if my if senior police officers were watching this now, they'd probably try and hunt me down to keep my mouth shut because <laughs> I don't want to admit it. It's about figures, okay? It's about how many people can you arrest that month? So, you know, if you get towards the end of the month and you haven't hit your target of X amount of arrests per month, you then sit outside a nightclub and try and arrest somebody that is a little bit drunk and disorderly so that you can put that tick in the box. Oh, my or, God. Frankie. Oh, this is what it's like. And, you know, if I didn't have enough uh, fixed penalty notices for, let's say, mobile phones, at the end of the month, there was a place that I used to go and sit up and I used to go and sit up on my late shift at five o'clock when it was tea time and everybody was coming home from work and phoning their partners to let them know that they were coming home. And I'd just pick off the, the mobile phone tickets and just, you know, they'd be like, oh, sorry, give me a warning, please. And I'm like, no, because I had to justify to my supervisors that I was performing. And... You know, yes, we had police dogs in the back of the van, but they didn't care if these police dogs were left in the van for 10 or 12 hours. As long as you tick in those figures to massage their egos and make it look like you've been doing your job. And the sad reality is, as a police dog handler, your job isn't there to arrest people. There's only four dogs covering the counter usually at one shift. So if you get tucked up in custody dealing with a drunken disorderly that any police officer can deal with, your dog's stuck in the van and you're not able to go and help with a missing child search or... Uh, a vehicle that's been stolen and they're possibly going to crash and run off you can't help with that because you're in custody so you know a lot of the time I would spend my time doing what I call true dog jobs so that would be six hours looking for a kid that's gone missing in a country park but that gives you no tick in the box at the end whereas if you happen to be having your lunch at the police station and somebody comes in that's wanted on bail and they need arresting and you go down there and arrest them and just put them into custody you are the most amazing police officer because you've got the tick in the box for the arrest so it's bollocks it's total bollocks excuse my language and it's like this is not the job that I joined to do which is to help people and work my dog and I thought and you know I ruffled a few feathers within my uh, within the police because I always felt that the dogs didn't have the uh, the vans were not suitably equipped for the dogs you know they were crappy little vans with no air conditioning you know they had no padding in them or anything and you know if we put our dogs into kennels because we went on holiday the kennel maids would go home at four o'clock in the afternoon and not come back into eight o'clock in the next morning but those dogs would be left all night now if that dog had a torsion which is a twisted stomach or a bloat which German shepherds are prone to there's going to be nobody there to see that dog going through that at night and that dog will be dead in the morning and it was just so many things that I disagreed with and tried to do this for the welfare of the dogs and people weren't interested because our supervisors were not passionate about animals they were not dog people they were not dog handlers and they didn't want to listen and they didn't want to listen to someone like me a female that's trying to do something for the dogs and just ruffling feathers so I had a lot of conflict 
But how do they, I don't understand though, if governments are trying to like release figures of crime reduction, you know, crime rate is down by blah, blah percent or however many thousand each year, month, whatever. How can the crime rate ever come down if the police are all about ticking the boxes and getting their crime rates sustained, if you see what I mean? The problem is, is that crime pays, doesn't it? You know, crime, crime, crime makes money, so they never ever want to get rid of the crime rate. And if they, you know, if they want to change the statistics on something, say, for example, this was another great one that they did while I was in it. Uh, we had a lot of vehicle thefts one month and we had to do a target of getting vehicle thefts down. So all they did was they just crimed it as a criminal damage. So if there was an attempt to theft of a vehicle, rather than crime that is intent to theft of a vehicle, they just crime it as a criminal damage. Oh, I see. It's, so it's playing with statistics, whichever way you need it to work. Yeah, and I'm a very honest, moral person, and I'm not here to play that game. I joined that job to make a difference, which many do, and I went in there as a very naive 20-year-old thinking I could make a difference, and I couldn't make a difference, and it was like, there's got to be something better out there, and although I love the dogs, you know, we had to put those dogs into some horrific situations at times, and I was like, I don't want to be, you know, if something happens to that dog, you know, on my shift because they wanted me to send him across a road or down a ditch or whatever and you know we had it dogs that got injured and you know I'd never forgive myself and I thought I don't I don't want to do this forever and also you know it was hard on my my body and my mental health working shifts all the time mostly nights is hard you know you don't have a social life you know I'm quite I'm not a, I'm not a small female but I'm you know I'm five foot seven I'm not you know I'm you know I'm athletic but mm. my my back was hurting from the equipment that we used to carry like my knees were sore from running over the uneven ground my ankles were shot to pieces through all the running I thought you know I can't do this as an old person and I didn't want an office job so there was no choice but to look for something else and so you went to screw up your neck and your hands by being a lash artist well actually I never wanted to be a lash artist and I I actually got into beauty through my creativity so it Although, you know, no, I'm not into beauty. I was always doing things like applying makeup and painting my nails funky colours when I was sort of 14, 15, 16. And I actually was getting my lashes done whilst I was in the police um, by a girl that was a mobile beauty therapist. And she looked from the outside, look, she had it all. Like, she was beautiful. She was rich, you know. You know, I'd ask her, you know, what have you got booked in today? And she'd be like, well, I've got lashes this morning, then I've got nails, then I've got a wax. And then by the time I added up what she'd earned that day, she was on like 100 to 200 pounds a day, she was. And I was like, Bloody, that's twice the much I'm, as much as I'm earning for quite a dangerous job. Yeah. Was like, I could do that. And, you know, I had the creativity and I sort of started looking into it and I don't do anything by halves. Like... I'm an all or nothing kind of person. I think that's why I'm so passionate about lashes because I don't just flounce through it. It's like, right, it's got, it's got to be right. So I started sort of um, looking into, you know, how, what you, what you need as a, a, as a beauty therapist, like what qualifications and all of that. And the problem that I was, I couldn't go back to college because I wouldn't have been able to pay my college fees and then get a part-time job um, and support myself, you know, as I was 30, you know, I had bills to pay and things like that. So, I managed to sort of realise that I could actually just go to like 
uh, night school there was a college near me that did courses all the time and I could work it around my shift so I went and got my qualifications in all aspects of beauty um, whilst being a police officer and then I built my business part-time so yeah. I, I applied for secondary employment so I did uh, beauty on the side then I was still a police officer and then I took the, the leap of faith to, to leave the police and then go into full-time beauty so I was doing everything not just lashes to start off with right so the whole works and when did you realize that you could leave nails and the rest behind and that lashes would become your sort of niche specialty I, it probably wasn't i think uh god i started see I, I i hated lashes to start off with to be honest like my my initial training in lashes was horrific it was mm. six hours um Wow. We did about half an hour of theory, which was awful. And then we all worked on each other with J curls, or it might have been C curls, 0.25. But you did get to actually put lashes on a human because I, I, I only ever got to do a patch test on, on a fellow student. The rest of it was all on a mannequin head. Was it? Yeah. But that was, yeah, that was, that was the, well, I'm not actually going to say just in case. <laughs> what year did you do your training in? 2010. Oh, okay. So I did mine in 2012. So you were just a bit before me. So lashes were ridiculously new, I suppose. When yeah, you did... big fat lashes, looked like pubes, loose, loose lash pots, you know, dreadful glues, clunky tweezers. In fact, I, I learned to lash with two straight pairs of tweezers. I even learned to volume lash with two straight pairs of tweezers. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. my God. No hope, is there? No hope. <laughs> no hope at all. God, yeah. It's just, it's crazy, isn't it? When you think about it, how far our industry has come, you know, since yeah. Um, But yeah, but, but, you know, like your training, Joe. you know, the training was so poor and the products were so poor that actually doing lashes was really hard, wasn't it? So I don't know about you, but my sets never looked good. My clients were never happy. Retention was always poor because we were working sensitive adhesive. So, you know, for me, lashes kind of went on the back burner for probably the first sort of year and oh. a half. Well, I look up at pictures now and I think, how did people actually pay me to stick those on their face? <laughs> I'm like, like tree trunks. But my clients were happy and I was happy because there was no social media. Instagram wasn't a thing. I don't even think Facebook was a thing. So I was blissfully unaware as to how terrible I actually was. And we were all that bad, weren't we? So even if we had had social media, we would all have been posting the same rubbish and thinking that we were, <laughs> we were pretty good, weren't we? But, um, yeah, yeah I, hate, I hated lashes. I always thought I was going to be a nail technician. You know, I was good at nails. I love the creativity of doing enhancements. Um, but I sort of, you know, the, there wasn't a lot of money to be made in nails because we mm -hmm. were saturated by so many non-standard salons that were just boshing out sets for like 20 quid. And when, you're, when they're using electric drills all the time, and again, I've got nothing against electric drills because they do have their place in the nail industry, but, you know, I couldn't compete with the price war. And, uh, you know, back then, lashes were still quite new and we actually could charge, I thought, you know, lashes were quite expensive back then, weren't they? You know, your standard classic set, even though they were crap, was still about £80 back yeah, then. It's still a luxury treatment and I think this is where people get it wrong. It is a luxury treatment. Our prices should reflect that still. Okay. Don't start me, Joe. I'm just about to do a youtube video on that and a podcast of charging what you are worth because i'm so annoyed with constantly looking at forums of people charging ridiculous amount and even trainers like at the moment there's people offering their online courses for like there was one today she's doing it for like 20 pounds i'm like you're, so you're selling 
your skills and I've had a conversation with her before and it was like well I just want to be nice during lockdown to people and you know it really gets my back up because it's like so you're selling your skills through training that you've taken for less than a set of lashes so you know when you think about it to be you know to learn to learn a, a technique properly takes a hell of a lot of training you know you take a good course you're looking at anything from 400 to 600 pounds probably at least three to four courses before you get good at that so you're looking a minimum of two grand and then all the practice that goes into it and then getting that course accredited all of that the cost on top of that and you're going to sell that for 20 pounds so why don't you just start lashing your clients for a pound because when you put it like that and it's really annoying me because how do you even in our industry, everyone, especially now, is just out for a bargain. And it's just devaluing the whole industry yeah. of doing this. Um, I, I would assume that a course for 20 quid was crap. And you get what you pay for. Buy cheap, buy twice is kind of my motto. But, I mean, maybe it is good training. I mean, do you, have you looked at it? Do you know that it is? I, ha- I have bought some cheap courses. Uh, and they have been pretty crap. And actually, I have bought one course for about £40 that was really good. But... Again, why are you selling your yeah. skill so cheap? You might as well just flash sets. Yeah, it just, just really just annoys me because where's this industry going to go if you just keep devaluing our industry all the time? You know, exactly. Charge. And you don't stop with one training, do you? I mean, I think all good lash artists that want to be, you know, a, a lash artist rather than, you know, just someone who does lash sets when there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be like a lash artist, we take continuous trainings i mean you still take trainings now i take trainings every year i love taking trainings because even if i get one thing from that training that i can take on into my lash sets and my lash life it's money well spent i love doing trainings and i think it's really important to stay on top of those skills and i think you owe it to your clients don't you to ensure that you are always up to date you know doing the you know the, the most up-to-date technique and again as a trainer you owe it to your students that you have to be learning all the time so that you are only delivering the best and most current content to them but I don't know I, I don't know you know I think, I think the passionate ones in the industry too do but I think there's a lot of people out there that are just in it for the money and that's quite evidenced by the fact that they're trying to undercut everybody mm. they're really passionate about charging what they're worth you know, I suppose I, it's desperate times, isn't it? On one hand, yes, and then on the other, people are taking desperate measures. I know plenty of lash artists during lockdown that were having to work because they had no choice. They didn't feel comfortable with it, probably, but they were desperate. They couldn't feed their families if they didn't. So they were having to go against government guidelines to just stay afloat. And maybe it is a sign of the times. Everyone is just, it's desperate measures just to make ends meet, maybe. I don't know. And, and a sad side effect of that is that potentially we bring and degrade the value of the whole lash industry as a result. It is a tricky one. And yeah, you do have to look at it from both sides. But you know, a lot of this was going on well before COVID. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Our industry has been devalued, isn't it, for probably the last three or four years. And I've not seen any chance or any sign of any real sort of recovery, especially I think in the UK as well. You know, when I talk about you, Joe, but when I look on forums about how much some of these people charge for lashes, I'm like, I need to move to the States because, you know, our average price here in the UK is so low for lashes now. It's just like, you know, and unfortunately clients don't really know the difference between a bad set and a good set. You know, everyone knows the difference between shopping at Marks and Spencer's and shopping at, I don't know, Aldi, for example. 
but they just seem to think that 80 pound lashes are exactly the same as 20 pound lashes and then when they get a bad set of 20 pound lashes they're the first people to bash our industry and tell you how eyelash extensions damage your lashes so it's a real it is a real tricky one i don't know you know what the answer is to Do you think we're going to survive as an industry through this whole corona coaster i think we will i mean i think you know, our industry is majority made up of women. I wish there was more men in it, but I think as women, we are very, very resilient. I think we do pull together as an industry overall. I know, you know, there's some negative things that come out of, you know, what we've just spoken about, but I think as a whole, as an industry, we're very tight knit. We're very supportive of each other. Mm. Um, and I think also because we're so passionate, aren't we, about what we do, that I just, I don't think that, yeah, I think that we will come out of it. I think we'll come out of this stronger than ever, actually. I really do. Because I think we'll be, I think we'll have this new lease of life that, ah, oh, we're allowed to, to lash people and we'll, you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, we'll have this new sort of passion for what we do. So I do think we'll come out stronger. And I think, you know, clients are just going to be so happy to feel, I mean, I, I mean, I can't wait. I'm going to go to the theatre. I'm going to go to restaurants. I'm going to get my hair done. I'm going to get my lashes done. I'm going to be like, so happy just to be out there. I mean, it's like a dream though, isn't it? It's like, when is this, when is this dream that was life gonna happen? I, it's gonna be like being a, a dog that's been caged forever. Yeah. And you open up the door and the dog just runs off into the meadow yeah. and just runs the grass. And I think that's, that is what it's gonna be like. I think it's gonna be, I think it's gonna be amazing. And I said, like, so I think we're gonna come back stronger than ever, ever after this. Fingers crossed. I'm sure you're right. I've got a good feeling about this year. And I know there seems to be a lot of positivity around on Instagram and things. I am detecting that people are very much sensing that this is the, this is the beginning of the end, so to speak, in a good way, um, yeah. the end of um, our lockdowns and stuff. But just going back to your, your first course, you presumably you discovered that lashes having not liked them initially what was the what was the light bulb moment for you where you thought actually I'm really good at this and um this is what I'm going to pursue and specialize in so yeah I went and had a set done of lashes myself now I had sets done before and I was never particularly happy with them I'd had some horrific lashes done oh god if anyone's listening to any of my other podcasts they'll know the story of having my eyes stuck together and cutting them open and oh my god <laughs> Not the next day because my eyes were literally just so painful but anyway I went and had a set done from somebody a friend of mine had a set done and they looked amazing so I went to the lash artist and had a set done I didn't know at the time that they were um express lashes so she'd literally just slotted them in but they looked incredible like the direction was amazing yeah. Was very very good at what she did and yeah she's still a friend of mine actually she runs a business over in the next town very lovely lady um and I don't have anything against express lashes if they're done properly um and I sort of thought oh my god how does she get her lashes so uniformed whereas I was always taught probably like you were Joe, was to grab a bead of adhesive swipe it three times on the natural lash and then let it go and then the extension would follow the direction of the natural lash so it, that's why our sets were so crisscrossing yeah. So I just started to engage with my brain because the problem was I just did what I was told in training. I didn't, I didn't consider thinking outside the box. And I think that's what makes you a really awesome lash artist. And I thought to myself, well, what, you know, what would happen if actually I didn't just let the lash go? I actually controlled the direction, which is bloody hard when you're working with a slow curing sensitive adhesive, which is all we had back in the day because the lash just didn't cure. But anyway, so I, I, I practiced on my mum and I sort of thought, right, I'm going to do my own thing now. 
And by engaging my brain and doing what I thought was right, oh my God, my set improved. And that for me was almost like my addiction. That one set on my mum, and I remember doing it, I was like, ah, I, I get it now. I was like, just use your brain, Frankie. Do what you think was doing. Unfortunately, I started stacking lashes. Uh, so I, I was stacking 0.15s. I was doubling up 0.15s onto the natural lash because we didn't know then about lash weights and volumetric calculations and things like that. So I started to do all techniques like candy caning because it just felt that, you know, that would that's how it bonded better onto the natural. So once I started teaching myself that I could self-teach myself, I had this love for lashes and it just it just almost snowboarded completely out of control. And I became addicted to lashes. Like, I dream about it. I started searching forums for it, which weren't about back in the day. You know, we had one forum, which was Salon Geek. I don't know if you know. Yes, remember it. And there was nothing else. And, yeah, it was just like an instant addiction from that day. It really is as simple as that. So when did you start thinking along a training line did you did you become a trainer and then think I need products as well how did that all evolve because you've got it all yeah so again I never wanted to be a trainer I literally I was quite happy just doing lashes and a bit of other beauty now I was doing uh, nails waxing tinting spray tans um yeah bits and pieces like that so I never actually wanted to be a trainer but it wasn't until I started uh like posting on some of the the threads on salon geek back then people were like oh are you, are you a trainer and i was like no no, no i'm just a lash art because I, I like helping people i'm a, yeah. I'm a people and they were like oh god you know I, I think you should be a trainer and, and would would you become a trainer i was like to be honest i'm just quite happy doing lashes and then i started doing like videos on youtube i went on a business course and they were talking about you know getting onto youtube and um so i started doing videos on youtube and you know there weren't many lash videos back then so i I got such positive feedback from that. And again, it was, everybody was pointing towards, you know, do you do training? You should be a trainer. And I sort of thought about it and thought, well, I reckon I could probably do a better job than how I was initially trained. And, you know, I have a background in, you know, I've coached, I've coached uh, people playing sports over the years. I've trained a dog or trained dogs, you know, working with people in the police. I kind of had that, you know, that confidence and, you know, already their skills there. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and do this. So, I, you know, I set about, you know, setting up my training academy and writing my manuals and all of that. And, you know, I only started off with two courses to start off with, which was a beginner's course and a Russian volume course, because I, I trained in that back in 2013, 2014, I think. And I didn't really set up my training academy until late 2014, 15, I think. And then, um, you know, it was... Um, I didn't actually think about bringing a brand in. And when I first started training, I was actually using other products. I wasn't using my own. And it, I did a, I did the first ever UK Lash Conference that a lot of people won't even know about. So I held the first ever UK Lash Conference in 2015, and we held it up at Heathrow. Um, I can't even think what I've been called it now. And uh, it, was it was amazing. We had like, you know, 100 to 150 participants which we could fit in that room and then I, I had some vendors at the back and you know Hannah, Hannah Bajato from London Lash, she yeah. was there and you know I'm friends with Hannah and she said Frankie you need to you need to you know think about getting a brand and I was like no no because she was just sort of starting her brand then and she's done amazingly oh. well oh. yeah such a good businesswoman like I wish I had her confidence and her business skills she's and she's such a genuinely lovely person as well like when she talks and i'm with her i'm just like oh, i just want you to be my best friend she's just 
<laughs> she's such, such lovely. And it was her that said, you know, you should do a brand. And, you know, you've also got to think, Hannah's in London, I'm in Kent. I would be her direct competition. For her. So for her to actually say that to somebody that would be her direct not ex exactly direct competition, but comp mm -hmm. how nice is that? So I thought, well, I'm setting up my training academy. I do need products rather than keep buying them in. So, yeah, so that's how we sort of set up sort of the lash brand. And also, you know, because I was a working lash artist and, you know, these, these products are expensive to buy for lash artists. And especially back then, oh, my God, what I was using was rubbish most of the time. I was getting through so many glues that I wasn't happy with. I wasn't happy with the quality of lashes. Tweezers were pretty rubbish back then as well. You know, trying to find a good volume tweezer back then was just a nightmare. Um, and that's pretty much how it sort of all came in hand in hand with, you know, the training, bringing the brand in. And, yeah, it kind of sort of went from there, really. What's your go-to um, volume tweezer shape? Oh, uh, I'm... I'm a Dumont, like I am a Dumont girl all day long because I'm very soft handed, like I'm very, very delicate with my hands. So I can't do chunky tweezers like, right. you know, Dumont's suit me. What's your one, Joe? So I, I have a real problem with, <laughs> with tweezers because my hands are so sore. So I need a really light touch as well. The Dumont's didn't work for me just, but I need a really light boot so my tweezer my boot tweezer my one pair that I swear by is inspire lashes and I've been looking for even subsequent pairs that I've had don't work I'm so bad I've literally got if I drop this pair of tweezers that have gone on for a good few years now they are still as sharp as they ever were they're as light they're beautiful I have just found another light pair from a girl in Limerick love lashes oh I in your story I think yeah so I'm quite excited about about that but I won't know until I really get back to it but yeah I do struggle with tweezers if you really have to squeeze that tension mm, I really suffer yeah yeah and it is you know it is isn't it there's no one I've always said this on my videos and that there's no one tweezer that suits that but you know it's why we all like different shoes and mm. bags or whatever you know it is just a case of finding a tweezer, isn't it, that, that works for you, whether, you know, it's all to do with your experience level as well, whether you're a novice, advanced, whether you're light-handed, whether you're heavy-handed, uh, the length of your fingers as well. You know, I've got yeah. ridiculously long fingers compared to most people, so I can work with a longer tweezer than somebody that's got short stubby fingers. So, yeah, it's very, very much personal. But for me, I am a Dumont girl all day long. I cannot work with anything other than Dumont. Do you wiggle? No, I cannot wiggle for the life of me. And the problem with wiggling for me is um, that there's it's too much guesswork for me. So I'm very precise. So I'm like, right, I need to put that lash there and that. So when you wiggle, it's kind of like, oh, what are you getting? And it just it's, it goes proper against my OCD. Sorry it's like, about it's like it's like sorcery wiggling, isn't it? Have you seen Bryony where the way she wiggles? It's just like I'm transfixed by her. People are amazing at it, and I wish I could do it. I really do, but it's just I was not put on this planet to wiggle lashes, and I've just got to accept that. Yeah, I leave my wiggling to the dance floor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh dear. So you you've just talked about your precise work and the way that you like to work, and I just like to touch on the fact that your kind of thing, your absolute passion, is tricky lashes and lots of your well you don't have that many clients anymore but the ones that you do keep are the ones with the tricky sets that you won't want to farm out to other lash artists so talk me through sparse lash sets and tricky lashes okay so i think i think it's something that we all do need to to 
to be proficient in and take a good training course in it as well because it is its own specific technique but you know it's for me it's one of the most satisfying sets to work on when you get something that comes to you with very sparse lashes and you're like oh my god what am I going to do with this to actually be able to show that client well first of all you've got to make sure that that client is realistic about mm -hmm. what they can achieve and that means a thorough consultation and, and and not flowering it up in any way but you know it's just yeah it's it's understanding how to work on that client, the correct length, the correct thickness, you know, how you build your fans. It's got to be volume lashes. Um, you know, you can't work in, in layers when it comes to, to sets like that. You know, your position has to be spot on where you've got gaps and stuff. And, you know, I think it's a technique that really is overlooked um, a lot. Uh, a lot of people, like I said, don't don't train in it. They they overlook it because it's all about big, bold sets and that. But actually the technicality that goes into producing a good looking set um yeah i think it, it's such a and it, you know it became my niche because i started attracting clients that you know were more mature or who had come from elsewhere with severe damage so i had to very quickly learn how to to deal with that that type of client and it yeah it absolutely became my niche and i actually love working on that that type of client you know when i get a client that's got a ton of natural lashes i'm like oh god no give me my sparse natural lashes. <laughs> you're some kind of lash pervert aren't you <laughs> I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. Like I'm, um, I, I need to use my brain. So you know, lockdown's not good for me because I don't use my brain at all. And I, I get a bit, uh, I have a bit of a wobble if I'm not, you know, if I'm not mentally, I never used to be like this. I've got worse as I've got older, you know, and, and these technical sets where I really have to think, I'm a, I'm a thinking lash artist. I'm not a doer, I'm a thinker. So if you put a sparse lash set in front of me, I am in my element where I've got to use my brain. And when you get problems, you're like, right, why is that not working? I have to use my brain. That is my element. But, and it, it's a shame that we don't, I, uh, that we don't see a lot of sparse sets posted because they're not, they're not always aesthetically pleasing. You know, our industry is about the biggest, the boldest, whack it out there. And so we don't get to see the technicality that goes into these. And I wish our industry would embrace these, these techniques, too, because actually to be able to deal with a client with very sparse natural lashes and make it look aesthetically pleasing as well as say is trickier than having yeah. a client with a ton of natural lashes where you can use a d curl in one length or yeah. whatever yeah and i think it, it very much is uh yeah overlooked within within our industry and it's you know we were chatting about this before it's great to see that actually that we've got a competition not we but in the industry it's a competition coming out that is dealing with tricky natural lashes because yeah, I said, I think it's a very fundamental part of, of what we mm. do as artists. That's going to be a goodie. And you're allowed to um, apply with previous sets that you've done as well. So obviously, oh. yeah, so <laughs> you might have to enter that one and blow it all away. I'm going to have to have an alias, do you know what I mean? Because they'll be like, well, it's Frankie, so we can't, we can't judge it because otherwise it will be fixed. So I might have to get into with an alias and see how we get on. <laughs> do you teach bridging in your tricky... Um, no, you don't like bridging. I don't because I'm not an expert at bridging as well. Um, and also, you know, I don't, I don't know too much about the technique. So for me, I will never teach something that I'm... I'm not an absolute expert in, but I just don't, and this is just my personal feelings, I'm not saying it's right, I don't see how bridging can be safe because you're putting so much strain, and like I said, I don't know the technique properly, but you're putting so much strain on the neighbouring lashes either side to make that bridge. Um, 
I just don't think it's a I don't think it's a long-term solution for a lot of clients so yeah I leave that to the people that teach that um, so if they've got a scar maybe on their lash line or where there's you know there's nothing in the follicle the follicles are empty they're never going to grow back you're not going to be able to rehabilitate their lashes so somebody's got issue how would you approach a big gap are you just going to do it with your fans uh so i have bridged in the past but i've never had a client that's had a permanent okay uh, a big lash gap like that you know i've had i've had clients that have got little gaps and you can you know you can work on that by just cleverly you know if you've got a gap just make sure as you know you place your fans you know on the right on the correct side of the natural yeah. lash and angle them inwards um but, you know, yeah, so, but for, you know, if I was to bridge on a client that had a gap, you know, like I said, I'm not an expert on it, but it is a case of either, isn't it, using strands of hair that make yeah. almost like, so it looks like a fence post, doesn't it? It looks mm -hmm. like a fence yeah. post, and then you attach the fans. It's very, very tricky to do. Um, but for me, you know, when I did have a client that had a massive gap like that, I just made her stick cluster lashes in the middle of it. So I just said, look, while your lashes grow back, just put some cluster lashes in there with latex based glue. Uh, just make sure that you just clean very gently around that area just to fill that gap while your lashes grow out underneath mm. it. And that's how I've always worked it with a client like that with a lash serum and mm. that's your job. So bridging is not, is not my thing, but you know, there are some amazing teachers that teach it. And again, it's a good technique for you to have, you know, under your belt in case yeah. you need to do that. It looks so hard. And also the fact that they can never brush through their lashes as well is like, yeah. it's a very temporary fix. It's not for everyday wear, is it? For sure. Temporary, definitely, in my opinion. Yeah. So you've talked about not being good when you haven't got lots to do and haven't got a focus and implied that, you know, it has mental health knock-ons. This has been an incredibly testing year for somebody who doesn't like that. Obviously, we had the first lockdown and now here we are on our third one. How, how did you feel in that first lockdown? Has it knocked you? Did it knock you sideways? Um, I actually did ridiculously well in the first lockdown. Um, I had what well, it was a very positive time for me because I'd literally just moved house. So I managed to get in just before lockdown so I was counting my lucky stars so I was like this is just amazing so you know, I bought my first ever house so I'd always sort of rented before and live with partners so I actually moved into my you know first ever house and I live here on my own just me and my dog so it's just been us for the pretty much lockdown which I quite like my own company I'm not the most sociable person which you wouldn't you wouldn't think with all the lash events that I go to and that but I've always been just quite happy on my own just me and my dog more than happy um but yeah, I moved into a, a fabulous little place. I live literally opposite my uncle. So we've kind of made it our bubble. I've got yeah. amazing neighbours. I've got beautiful fields out the back. I'm close to my parents. So very, very lucky. So I was yeah, kind of counting my lucky stars. And because I'd moved in here, I had a lot of work to do with the garden. So we spent kind of like the first sort of four months and we had a fantastic summer here, didn't we, this yeah. year? So, you know, I kept ridiculously busy in the garden. I had a, I, I closed, I had a salon, um, 
about 15 minutes away from me and I closed that and put a big cabin in my garden because I've got such a huge garden here so I've moved everything into my garden now so we had a cabin built and decking put down and we astroturfed the garden so that kept us really busy it also gave me a chance to revamp a lot of my online courses which you know I like to revamp them every year or so so that kept me busy so actually I think during the first lockdown, I worked harder than I actually ever worked before because I had so much to do. Um, so first lockdown, I was I was actually exhausted, absolutely exhausted. Um, and I'm also, like I said, I'm not the most sociable person, so I don't actually go out really. Like I'm not a, I'm I don't go out clubbing. I'm not a drinker. I very rarely drink. Um, I don't go to the pub. I don't really go out. <laughs> dinner because to be honest getting ready like having to do your makeup and your hair is a bit of a ball ache or a bit lazy like that. so um so yeah it was always a bit of an effort for me I'm quite happy quite happy at home um so yeah that was quite good for me second lockdown completely different so I'd done everything I wanted to do it was the winter as well wasn't it I can't when was our second lockdown was it November November, November the third I think or second yeah so the weather was crap wasn't it I'd done everything and I think was it three or four weeks four 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 I was not good literally not good then I was climbing the walls I I was you know I'm not I'm not the most emotional person and I think that comes from being the police where you just cut off all of your feelings but god I was just wallowing in my own self-pity and also because it had been sort of going on for for so long and I hadn't been able to lash and I hadn't been able to train and do what I was used to doing and also you know as a business owner, you know, you're starting to worry about your business. You know, I, I live on my own. I pay for everything. So if I don't earn, I've got nobody there mm. that can support me. So, you know, it was kind of like, am I going to be able to financially support myself? Am I going to be able to pay my team? Uh, you know, are we going to be able to sustain this business? So it was very, very worrying times. And, and that's it. It's that, it's that not knowing, isn't it? You know, um, so yeah, that wasn't that wasn't the best time for me. Then we came out of lockdown, and I love Christmas. So the yeah. build up Christmas is is just everything. So I was very very positive, and then coming into this lockdown, I'm kind of like, well, we managed to keep our head above the water with the business, so that's good. And also, I think after what feels like about a year of lockdown now. We're kind of used to it, aren't we? We're kind of like, we're just like, yeah, this is just how it is. It's, it's, I think, I don't know about you, but I finally accepted that this is how we have to live our lives. And I also have to, I'm a, I'm a bit of a glass half empty kind of person, to be honest. You know, I come across as all this happy, cheery, you know, and we all do, don't we, on our social media. But actually, nobody ever really sees us behind the scenes. So, you know, this is getting quite personal here. I'm not the most positive person. And I think, again, that a lot of that comes from being in the police for 10 years mm. where, you know, they knocked you, it out of you. They did. And, you know, you know, from the age of 20 to 30, it's a very, there's a time where you learn a lot. And, you know, I, that's it. I felt like I'd lost that part of my life and I'm having to relearn and building a business over the years. You know, when I left the police, I had nothing. I literally had nothing. I was so poor. I had to move back in with my mum and dad. I had to get rid of my house, sell my car. I was living on peanuts. So, you know, it's, it, it, it was tough. Like the last sort of like eight years of my life since I came out of the police have been ridiculously tough, you know, not knowing where I was going, not knowing if I could feed myself that week. You know, my parents aren't particularly wealthy. So it's not like they could be all like, Frankie, just have a hundred quid here to, mm-hmm. to tell you over. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's been, it's been really tough and just, just, you know, to build a business and start getting where I wanted to get and then suddenly be hit by COVID. 
was just like I've been working my butt off for, for nothing. And all those people that told me that I was a fool to leave the police and try and do something that was a passion are actually probably right now. Because if I'd still been the police, I'd still have a job. So yeah. it was worrying. But, you know, this time, you know, the last couple of days I've not been great, if I'm honest. I don't know, I don't know what what that is but prior to that I had some really good actually I know exactly what it is um I if I'm working although there's days where I'm like oh god I don't really want to film that video and I can't bother to, to assess that case study and do that because I don't know about you but this lockdown breeds laziness doesn't it where you're lazy it just breeds more laziness and but when I actually get my teeth into something can I start rewriting another course or I start filming videos and editing videos and uploading that for me makes my mental health so much better. And I had a very lazy day yesterday and I wasn't in a good mood and I think that's what it is. So yeah, for me, I'm a bit of a workaholic to be honest. So I just have to try and mentally keep myself stimulated. Yeah. But you know, this, this lockdown, it's just, it's just, we're so bloody used to it now. So yeah, I'm just sort of having to learn to accept it and um, keep myself busy really. And my dog, bless him, he... Yeah, lovely. I, I, to I can totally relate to that and I'm sure many of our listeners um, can too. And, uh, you know, m my worst enemy is myself if yeah. I'm not doing stuff. So hence my ridiculous amount of podcasts. They <laughs> saved my bacon in, in lockdown because I had a reason to get up in the morning. I had a reason to get dressed, brush my teeth, do my hair. I was using my brain. I was, I was distracted from what the hell was going on. I wasn't having to think. If I stopped to think and sit down and watch a, a box set or whatever, oh, I just feel so lackluster and the mood starts to drop. So I can totally get what you're saying. It's a, for me, it's about having structure and being busy, whatever that is, whether it's sorting out my cutlery drawer or, <laughs> or, or my knickers, you know, or doing a podcast. I've got to be busy. Yeah. And you know what? I think it's really important that we're honest about how we're feeling um, because I think everybody puts on such a brave face. Like, you know, especially I think for us in England, you know, we're still saturated on social media of people that can work, that people mm. are still earning a living, um, you know, that are still doing lashes, are still buying products. And, you know, for us that have been locked down well, we're in, we're in our third lockdown, but down in here in Kent, you know, we've only been open for about eight weeks of the year, haven't we? You know, we were shut down from what, you know, uh, March through to August, and then we got shut back down in November. We came out of it for a few weeks, and they locked us down the week before yeah. Christmas, so so many people lost their, what they were hoping were their Christmas earnings. So I think it's really important that we actually do talk about this and that we're actually honest about, yeah, we have good days and we have bad days because everybody still paints on that false smile, don't they, on Instagram or Facebook of like, I'm doing okay. When actually, let's talk about that it is a pretty cruddy time for all of us and, you know, we're all we're all having, you know, those good and bad days. So, exactly. Yeah. And I do think, though, I mean the industry is really quite good, as you said in the beginning, at getting behind one another. And I do feel like, that. I mean, people talk about the Corona coaster. And for me, it's kind of like a seesaw. And I find like, you know, when one of you is down, the other one is, is a bit less down and is able to pick the one that's down a bit up, you know, and it, it feels like we've all been catching each other at different points and building each other up. And then when you fall, there's someone there to catch you and and pick you up and I, I do feel like this the bond between all of my lash buddies has become so special and 
maybe if it wasn't for coronavirus, that wouldn't have happened to that degree. Yeah, I think you've got a, I think you've got a great point there. And like I said, I think, you know, coronavirus has shown us how supportive we are of an industry. You know, you think we're actually technically we're all competing against each other, aren't we? But yet we've still pulled together and, you know, bring each other up and comment on each other's posts. And yeah, I think we are, we are overall, we are, you know, a, an amazing industry to, to be in. And there's, you know, a lot of people that have done amazing free webinars and, you know, lives over, over the, the months just to try and sort of raise that morale. And I think it really has worked. Yeah, no, it's very special. So, um, are you looking forward to getting the vaccine? Will you be lining up for it? Dare I ask? Well, first of all, I was very anti the vaccine. I was like, you're not putting anything in me that hasn't been tested, blah, blah, blah. I'm not having that put in me. But then it's because I was really ignorant and I hadn't actually really done any research against it. And then I was speaking to a friend of mine that um, she she's into animal vaccines. So she works with animals and, you know, humane testing and things like that. And she was talking me through it and how it's you know, it's not a part of the virus and it's all, it's a synthetic one and all of that. And she mentioned, well, I won't bore you with it. But actually I thought, do you know what? Yeah, yeah, let's just get it, you know. And yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, things like that don't particularly, you know, sort of bother me. Yeah, I, I will probably, I'm not going to be front of the queue to get the vaccine, but um, yeah, if it comes out and it's available to get it, why not? I've had lots of other vaccines, so. Yeah, and we you? put a lot of other shit in our bodies, don't we? <laughs> certainly do so what's one extra you know? <laughs> i am nervous about it i you know there's talk of how it causes infertility and stuff obviously i don't need to worry about that but i have got two daughters and i worry about long-term effects you know there's you know the i just over history you know there are issues with medications as there always are and you know now with the pfizer vaccine they only tested it with that three week interval and now they're talking about stretching it to a 12 week interval is it you know there's all of this i just feel like we're in this quagmire of cock-ups so is the vaccine another freaking cock-up i i don't know i i actually feel like i've lost the power of cognitive processing through this i don't know what to think anymore frankie i hear you and i think it's because we're getting so much conflicting information aren't we that we just we don't know what to believe or what not not to believe and everyone's got an opinion and I don't know. Sometimes I agree with my own opinion. Sometimes someone says something and I'm like, I should agree with your opinion, but then that's my opinion. And, oh, uh, do you know what? I've just learned, just go with the flow now. Just yeah. go with the flow and just deal with it as and when. That's my personal feeling. We kind of just have to go one, one day at a time. If you worry too much about things that may or may not happen, you drive yourself demented. So one day at a time, as something presents itself, deal with that as it does. That's kind of my survival strategy at the moment because it's all just too massive. It's, it's actually a really good one. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really good one. It's like living in the moment. I don't know if you've read that book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm, it rings a massive yeah. bell. I might have done. I've read so many of those books. Yeah, if anyone's watched or listened to this podcast and you are somebody sort of, you know, has, deals with your mental health or, you know, has the normal anxiety of worrying about the future, that book for me, I'm not a big book reader, uh, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle was a, a great book that that actually it, it sort of teaches you to, to live in the now and that, you know, these negative thoughts that we have about the future, 
they don't map out the future they don't change the future they don't change the past and it is about appreciating what we have now in this moment um and it yeah it's a great way of, of almost like retraining your brain to think yeah. if i ever fall off the wagon as i call it i always go back to that that book and it just kind of like resets me into a, a positive mind so oh. Good, good, good recommendation. I mean, kids are so good at living in the present, aren't they? So we almost need to like find our inner child. I agree. I think, unfortunately, I think as you get older, life teaches you not to live in the present, doesn't it? Because of all the stresses that we have. But yeah, if we can take a leaf out of kids' books, oh, we'd, we'd be amazing, wouldn't we? Although, to be honest, probably nothing would get done, would it? <laughs> and, and it's all about instant gratification as well. They live in the present, but they want it right now. That's it. And they don't want to do any work for it either. <laughs> oh, but I do feel sorry for kids right now. They are missing out on, on so much of, of living. And, you know, I've got a 16-year-old. She's just had her GCSEs cancelled. You know, it's been such a, a shit year. And who'd be a teenager right now, Frankie? Oh, God, it must be horrific for them. It really must, mustn't it? You know, growing up is hard enough as it is. But with everything that's going on and also, you know, I think a lot of a lot of kids, kids will say inverted brackets. Yeah, you know, people don't really take them seriously, do they? But you know, they're young adults at the end of the day. And do people actually really listen to them when it comes to things like this? And you know, the stress that they must be under under what is a uncertain future for them. It, I, yeah, I do not envy them at all. Uh, I mean, the, we've you know think about i mean i don't know if you were this this girl growing up but for me i was so intense in my friendships and they were almost like you know all, you know the, you just wanted to be with them and talk to them all the time and now they can't see anyone they're cut off i mean in a way thank god for social media snapchat and all of that so they're not isolated but their life is just lived through a mobile phone it's miserable yeah, like I must say, you know, I've always been a bit of a loner, to be honest. Like I never, never really had that many girly friends because I was always too busy sort of playing sport after schools or at the weekend. I was at the yard with the horses and that. So I, I didn't, I didn't have that. And for me, you know, if I wasn't on social media, I'd be drawing or playing in the garden or making bracelets or doing something. But, you know, living... I don't, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be a kid or a teenager growing up now. I wouldn't want to have the pressures of social media that they have. And also being in lockdown where your only contact with the outside world would be social media. Because I also think it gives you a warped view on what is mm -hmm. really going on. Because again, that takes us back to, you know, if they're not feeling great about themselves, but their friends are posting all these, you know, pictures on Instagram of how amazing their cocktail night was that they had on their own. You know, it's, it's given them sort of like, well, they seem to be happy during lockdown and I'm not feeling that yeah. way. Oh, God, well, child, child suicide is, is at an all time high. God, you know, I know so many families that have lost, you know, children or friends of the family children to suicide based on the pressures of social media that we didn't have, did we? We didn't know what was going on, you know. You, you know, things like every, you know, the makeup, the makeup now that you see on social media with, you know, these girls that are 15 and making themselves up to look like they're 30, the pressures to look like that. And, oh, yeah, I, I feel so sorry for the, the pressures that are on them now. I didn't even I didn't even have an answer phone growing up. I'd literally go out in the morning and you know come home when my belly was rumbling and that was it. How simple was that? We'd just be out. 
Or if you went to meet your friend and they didn't turn up, yeah. you'd have to go home, wouldn't you? <laughs> Where are you? Or we'll meet you. But it's like, oh, just, just go home then. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different world. And I'm glad oh. I did not grow up in that world that we've got now. Me too. I feel like I grew up, I, I just straddled the two worlds at just about the right kind of level, you know, so, but yeah, it is tough. You're totally right. So um, just before we wrap up, obviously there are lots of online competitions at the moment. Some can be, you can um, put in old works. Some will require new competition deadlines are being pushed back and back and back. Would you encourage girls out there to do online competitions or live lash competitions is this part of growing as a lash artist oh my god absolutely you know i do appreciate that not everybody wants to compete you know it's not everybody's niche at the end of the day um but it's such a great way to showcase your skills that you've learned also get involved in something at the moment as well during these tough times and also, if you're somebody that wants to learn and you want to know how to take your work to the next level, it's, it is such a great way because the feedback that you get from some of the judges is, is, is not something that you would get always in a course. Because if you think about it, you know, a lot of the judges are at the very, very top of their game. So they're looking at very, very technical aspects of work that could potentially be overlooked in a course. So, yeah, if you're really sort of looking to take your work to the next level and, and you're passionate about technical lashing so like we said earlier there's a difference between that your salon lashing your technical lashing so if you want to take that to the next level absolutely you know start competing because you know it is such a great way to to glean so much information from some of the you know top lash artists and top judges out there and don't leave it too late get in there as a beginner because the opportunity is so much greater it's so much easier isn't it as you go higher up through the levels it becomes virtually impossible to place it does. And also, you know, especially as a beginner, you know, you know, a lot of people as a beginner would never dream of entering because they're going to be thinking, well, there's no way in which I'm going to place or anything. But it's not about that. It's always what you've got to do is you've got to learn what we call your ring craft, first of all. So use competitions when you first start of learning what is expected from your competition. You know, don't go in there with the expectation that you're going to win or you're mm -hmm. going to even place. But yeah, you're going to learn about how to enter a competition because there's a, there is a difference between the set that you produce at a competition level is completely different to any set that you'll, you'll ever do. You know, you've got to have the right photograph angles. You've got to have the right model. You've got to make sure that you use the right type of lashes. So, you know, a competition level, if you're lashing a blonde model, always use brown lashes. Always. If you don't, it's likely you'll get marked down for overall effect. But at salon level, on a blonde model, it's very, very rare that you would use blonde lashes because a client's going to want black lashes. So yeah. it is, you know, again, you know, lengthwise, we don't ever really like to see over a 10, 11 millimetre max being used at competition level. But if you did that on most clients at salon level, you'd never see them again because they want 13, 14, 15, 25 millimetre lengths used. So yeah, it's about learning you know what's expected at a, comp a competition level it's, it's very very different and you know it's up to you what you want as a lash artist you know some people want to compete some people don't but if you're somebody that's been thinking about it just give it a go and just you know see how you get on with it so yeah is there anyone in the world that you still would like to book a training with uh, oh my god um Oh God, there's so many people. I've literally sprung that on you. I didn't even know I was going to ask you that. You have. Um, oh God. 
Um, or part of your skill set that you still feel like needs you could improve? It it does. It's a, it's a tricky one because um, because I don't get to lash that often now because I'm busy training. I um, my skills, my actual lashing skills, my practical lash skills are not that are not where they used to be. Um, yeah, they're, they're not where they used to be. Can you hear my dog barking? Yes, I can. I think he wants to go out. Where's the postman arrived? I've had like three postmen arrive in the time that I've actually been here. He's just turned up to the door and I hope he's going to leave it outside the door. Why does it always happen on a day like this? <laughs> Don't worry. I've had kids screaming. I've had husbands shouting. We've had the lot on here. Okay, I think I need to go to the door. Can I come back in one minute? Is that all right? You not totally here. can. I just talk to myself, Frankie. <laughs> Oh, I hope it was something exciting, Frankie. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it's going to be like Christmas when I um, yeah, open it up. I'll be like, Whoa, what is that? Um, but God, what was I talking about? Who you would like to train with or oh, yeah. something you still like to do for your lash yeah, life? So, um, Baldy Raver Lashes uh, from Instagram. She is, uh, her coloured lash sets are amazing. She does coloured lash sets. I'd love to train with her. And uh, Natalia uh, Morozova, I think, is how you pronounce her surname. And it's, you know, some of the ones that are the best in the world are usually Russian. And unfortunately, a lot of the time yeah. I can't pronounce their surname. So I'm very, very sorry if I've got that wrong. Um, but God, there's so many lash artists out there that I'd love to train with. But see, for me, I'm very creative. I love the coloured lashes and all of that. And... The problem is, is when, when you're not a full-time working lash artist doing it all day, every day, you very, very quickly lose your skills. You've, you know, you've got to be doing it every day and you've got to get a hell of a lot of practice in. So when you learn these new techniques, you've got to practice, practice, yeah. practice. And if you're not a full-time working lash artist, you can't practice that. But also getting the client in to practice that technique is the difficult one because a lot of people have um, sensible jobs, so they can't rock up with a sort of rainbow <laughs> they can't can they um so you know you end up lashing for free or yeah. reduced price and you can't afford to lash for free especially not during covid just to get your skills up um you know i trained with uh, melanie temple uh, mm -hmm. last year from glitz lash studio she is just uh, oh, i did her online training she's brilliant and she's so she's such a lovely person as well. I went down to she came over to um down to East Sussex and did her training down there. So I was like, I need to jump on that course. And I just love that. But again, you know, where I live in Kent is not really big strip clash country down here. You know, it's more sort of my clients are like the more sort of mature ones that turn up with like four natural lashes with her eye, and I've got to work my magic. And again, because I, you know, where I live, you know, the I, I won't sell myself short. So you know, I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and sell my sets for 30, 40 pounds. So I do set my sets higher, but then all I really get is the sort of the more mature women that have got a little bit more disposable income. So I don't really attract the sort of the young clients that are quite happy to pay out, mm. you know, what I am worth mm. through the years, the thousands that I've spent on training. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult because like I said, to, to, to be exceptionally good at what you do takes a hell of a lot of practice and you've got to have the right clients coming in 
to be able to practice that on and you've got to have a time which I just don't want well we can't last during lockdown and when I'm not in lockdown I'm usually traveling so for me you know if I'm traveling to train or judge or speak I can't have repeat customers you know that no. want to every three weeks because I'm not available every three weeks so it's a difficult one but yeah but you know I would I loved I love taking trainings absolutely love it I love learning I love speaking to, to other lash artists and glean as much information out of them because they'll always just tell you a technique and you're like oh my god I've got to try that you'll always learn something so yeah, yeah it's true it's I'm a total training addict myself so How about you? who would you like to train with oh well I would love to train with and was going to train with Arun Mooney Oh, she's amazing. She is amazing, but the it's been cancelled. We were all booked and nearly fully paid up, but it's obviously been cancelled. But I will train with her once we're out of lockdown. We will do that workshop again. So I was that, doing was that next month. Her training. Yes, it was through the Lash Social through Genevieve yeah. Pickens. So yeah, I was really looking forward to it, but because I was going to go to her place, and then I discovered that she lives in outer goodness knows where in the middle of a load of sheep miles and miles and hours and hours and hours away so the workshop was the only way I was ever going to get to her so I look forward to that one day as I look forward to lots of other things a holiday for a start I judged her work when I was in Paris and yeah she's amazing she is yeah she's incredible so yeah I'd actually really love to train with her as well yeah oh Frankie it's been amazing I've kept you for ages I don't know how long we've been talking about an hour and a half now so it's flown by thank you so much and um I want to wish you good luck with the rest of lockdown and maybe I'll catch up with you in a few weeks well thank you very much for having me uh yeah sorry that's my fault because I do like to waffle on uh, I've got a lot of stories to tell but yeah thank you <laughs> for having me and uh, showcasing me and also you know look after yourself as well I hope um I hope uh, yeah everything goes well, and also keep competing as well because um, yeah you're you're very very good at what you do. So please make sure that you keep entering competitions. Thank you so much. And on that high note, I will say goodbye and speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Nineteen.